0: Welcome back to the Jay Martin show. My guest today is Martin Pelletier, the senior portfolio manager at Wellington Altus Trivest and we went kind of all over the map with this one. We began by talking about the dumpster fire of Canadian politics and then we got into the Canadian housing market. so apologies to my America viewers the beginning might be a bit less interesting and then we pivoted to a more global conversation about the energy crisis. Uh, spiraling out of the Ukrainian war and U.S. dollar strength. So hope you enjoy this. Here's Martin Pelletier. Enjoy. What's up, guys? Welcome back to The Jay Martin Show, and I'm joined right now by Martin Pelletier. Mark Martin, how you doing? Good. Look, there's a handful of different directions I want to go today. I want to get a sense of where you're allocating capital, how you're managing cash on behalf of your clients, what you're staying away from, just as important. But right before I hit record, we started talking about these you know, civil divisions and civil unrest that we're seeing erupt really all over the world. Um, in your home province of Alberta, in Canada, uh, I mentioned I'd heard about a candidate that was running, who was running on the promise of some kind of a separatist ideology for Alberta. I mean. Countries loaded with energy, right? Um, It's not getting favorable treatment. And uh, I would imagine that message resonates with a ton of people. Um, So give me the breakdown, Martin. Like what's going on right now?
1: So we can start from the top down, a very high level uh, assumption. And there's a great book by Charles Goodhart talks about the, the great demographic reset. And what's happened is we've had deflationary pressures for years for the greater part of the last 35 years because we had a readily available source of labor. And as a result, that excess supply put downward pressure on on labor. And so we had deflationary uh, pressures overall. And as a result, you had a widening of the gap between the wealthier and the poor. Uh, Quantitative easing and monetary policy has done nothing for Main Street, and a lot for those on Wall Street with asset inflation. And so all of a sudden you have a whole swath of individuals um, not getting paid to, to the extent that they would like to get paid to, to and, and can't establish a life on their own that their parents, baby boomer parents did um, because housing prices is, is too high. So as a result, you're getting a polarization politically, uh, globally, uh, not just in Canada, but also in the U.S. and Europe and other jurisdictions, whereas the, the younger generation is saying, okay, um, I'm not happy about this and I'll swing votes from one extreme to the other. And in federally, you're seeing that with, Uh, Pierre Polyev getting votes from Jagmeet Singh, which they're both on opposite ends of the spectrum. And so you have a whole class of younger people who are looking for some form of equality or just a chance to be able to get ahead. Looking at back, tying it back to Alberta, you have a situation where um, you have um, a province that has been generating a significant amount of revenue and taxes and royalties um, and and being distributed throughout the country. uh, sharing the benefit from oil and gas. at the same time, you had um, an anti-oil development policy such as Bill C69 from Trudeau. And uh, so you've got a lot of people who are not happy because that capital is no longer coming into the province and we can't grow our energy. And so as a result, uh, we can't grow our economy um, other than you know keeping production flat and uh, and, and you know not being able to take it beyond that. And so you have a a portion of the population that's not happy about that and trying to get more rights or a fair share, a better better deal for Alberta, not unlike what Quebec has done. And her
0: name is Danielle
1: Smith. Did I get that right? What what
0: would you give her in terms of odds? Is she resonating with the Albertan public? Is this message, is it getting a positive response?
1: That's a tough one. (laughs) Yeah. I, I don't make bets on politics, as, uh, I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really, I would think that the probability is probably higher for her to get in, yeah. but there's also um, a large swath of individuals who have moved into the province from other jurisdictions like British Columbia and and Ontario, because our lifestyle and affordability is that much better. Um, you know, the average housing price here is four or 500,000 versus a million bucks in, in those other other areas. And so- yeah. have a whole bunch of people that have moved over here with uh, their own political views and so you know that may uh support the ndp for example rachel notley so um a lot of a lot of uncertainties yeah yeah you're seeing that
0: okay i'm actually trying to lock up pierre poliver for this show right now so if anybody watching knows that guy (laughs) got a few friends putting a bug in his ear but um i'm trying to get him on because i'd love to chat with that individual now you mentioned something about like sort of upcoming generation um, and the wealth disparity. And, you know, I actually heard some conversations like this at a party I was at recently and there were some super smart uh, and I guess how I would describe, you know, super competent uh, but in the early twenties um, having a conversation and it was sort of along the lines of, you know, the, 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 the game has been played already, right? We can't afford any of this stuff. And we won't ever be able to looking at the ret- direction prices are headed. So why would we try? You know, it's kind of this, like, if you're down 10, 10, nothing, and it's the, you know, third period, like, yeah, you hit that sense of apathy where you're like, I can't, I can't even attempt to level the playing field here. So, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to opt out. Right. And we're seeing this like quiet quitting trend now. I don't even see in this right. And, and various versions of, and I get it. Like if, if you, you know, woke up and you start, looking at the monopoly board and you can see that the disparity between yourself and whoever else is just like infinite. Right. And you would maybe make the assumption that somebody had cheated or the rules run fair. How did that person get so far ahead of me? Um, and you can kind of like understand their mentality a little bit, but how do, from your perspective, Martin, like, how does that, how do you run that forward? What, what occurs there? More, more populist uprisings. Like what,
1: what do you think? So I'm an optimist by nature, but also, you know, don't let that get out of control from being a real, uh, from looking at things from a realistic standpoint, the facts. The facts are, is that um, the U.S. economy is a powerhouse and and it is dynamic and it will change and it will adapt like any other ecosystem. And so, for example, um, there's a whole swath of people, younger people that are told you go to university, you get your degree and you've got this great paying job and you'll be able to start your life. It was the way out of poverty. It was the way out of poverty for baby boomers. It was a way out of poverty poverty for my generation, Generation X, but it is no longer the case um, so much for the younger millennials or Gen Z. Um, and the narrative is, is changed such that uh, COVID had accelerated, in my opinion. And so people are saying, well, there's no more tech jobs, for example. Well, actually, I just read an article today that uh, tech jobs, tech job postings are up 60% from last year. They're just not at SNAP who's laying off 25% of their workforce. They're not at any of the um, very uh, low cap, uh, the cost of capital dependent uh, quantitative easing type of uh, no cash flow, high burn rate tech companies. And they're going into other areas and other companies that need to high grade their technology. So that isn't going away. And actually it's growing, the fastest growing tech areas are in Houston. Detroit was number two, uh, mm. Orlando, Florida. And so it's no longer San Jose, California, right? It's no longer San Francisco. Um, it's other areas that are, that are changing. And so as a young person, you can complain and so there's no work or you can adapt. And so there are areas, for example, that um, there's 11 and a half million job openings in the U.S. And, uh, and, and, and so these younger people are going into places like Starbucks and they're saying, I'm not getting paid enough, so let's unionize. Um, the same thing in, in other areas. Or you can say, go into the services sector, um, you can make $100,000 a year being a plumber and start a plumbing business and have other plumbing uh, employees and move, live in Calgary, buy a house for $500,000 And you have two people making, you know, combined income of $200,000 a year and you're not working weekends and you have a crew that that are doing plumbing on people's houses that you can't disrupt. And so there's a big shortage of, of trades. And, and so there's sure there's a stereotype about that, but I have no problem with my kids. If they want to get into the, into that area, there'll be plenty of work and they'll get paid well. And if they're living in places like Calgary, they'd be able to live, build a, build a life for them. Maybe not Vancouver, maybe not Toronto, but, uh, If you're a big outdoors person like ourselves, then, you know, maybe it's not such a bad place.
0: No, not such a bad place at all. Yeah, we left Vancouver four years ago, my wife and I, when we had our second little boy on the way. And now we've got three and it was the best move ever from Vancouver to a town of 20,000 people. And just the quality of life, the peace of mind, the community. I mean, it ticks so many boxes. The affordability, of course, although the town that I moved to became one of those like covid hotspots you know it's 45 minutes outside of a metropolis but there's only 25 20,000 people in it so it's like it became one of those towns and people just flooded to, yeah. um despite ourselves we did really well on our home here but you yeah. know uh anyways okay so i want to uh
1: i want to pivot a little bit and i know your your focus is energy do i have that correct no and- it's 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 not it uh energy i do have an energy background so i spent 10 years in energy um, okay. And in the last 12, 13 years, we're more of a generalist. Um, so we've been underweight to energy uh, since 2014, all the way through to 2021. And so we did have a period that, uh, you know, I put my, my energy hat in the closet, but now I'm dusting it off um, yeah. and, uh, and positioning back into the sector. Okay. I knew about your background. That's where I was, mm-hmm. I was coming from. So yeah. talking about your
0: forecast, there's all kinds of wild speculation about what we may see at a super macro level globally this winter. Uh, one really you know exciting thesis is the breakup of the EU, and we're starting to see kind of almost consensus within mainstream media um, that once it gets cold, countries are gonna have to start making really tough decisions about who they align with. Yeah. Um, and um, so you're repositioning yourself. You're putting your focus back to energy after sounds like eight years of not really touching it much. So talk to me about where you're putting cash, Martin, and and what you're expecting.
1: Okay, so um, our biggest premise, we do something called goals-based benchmarking for all of our clients. So what that means is that each client has a specific goal that they want to achieve, and uh, and then we set a target return around that, and then we minimize the drawdowns and maximize the uh, upside participation. And we can do that through various means. Um, And so, for example, in March of 2020, uh, we had a 15% weighting in 20-year treasuries. Uh, which really helped because uh, those were up forty five percent. Helped offset our long equity exposure. We've taken that down, and we said, "What's the greatest risk that uh, that we're facing in today's current environment?" Well, um, it's inflation, and it's also uh, a commodity complex has been underinvested in for a great part of the last uh, ten years, and eventually that does play catch up, and so everybody's so focused on demand interruption and looking at, uh, at, at electric vehicles and, and going towards, towards that, away from internal combustion engines and, and peak demand, but they lost sight of what was happening on the supply side. And, uh, and we saw that through uh, policies, anti-oil development policies in all developed countries. Um, I read the other day that Europe's got actually more shale resource than the US but you know they've got they're not going to be able to tap into it because they have banned fracking and everything else. Yeah. Um, and so energy security got we got complacent. Energy security got put on the back burner. As a result, you had uh, a, a whole area like EFI Markets, uh, Europe, Australia, the Far East, but more so the E. U. Um, that allowed itself to get played totally by Russia, and uh, and Russia's become a major supplier of energy. And So they relinquished the potential to offset that. With domestic supply into jurisdictions like Russia and uh, and, and, and other developed countries are are going down that path. So Russia used that for its own advantage with Ukraine. And uh, as a result, we're having uh, an energy short, massive energy shortfall in Europe. And where it gets really troubling is this is happening at the same time that the U.S. is tightening and raising interest rates. And it's important to understand monetary policy, how that ties into energy policy as well, because um, as the U.S. is raising uh, their interest rates, the Europe, the EU has to raise interest rates alongside them because if they don't, the euro is going to is going to sell off. Okay, and so, but they don't want to raise interest rates when they're in a recession and energy energy crisis. And so, do they raise interest rates to defend their currency, or do they let the currency devalue? And then that will actually uh, propagate even more inflation because if you're importing goods and your currency is getting hit look to pull up Argentina, Venezuela, um, uh, Turkey is a perfect example. And and so there are a real situation. Does that mean it's a collapse of the Euro, um, uh, European Union? I don't know, but it doesn't look good. And and, and so what we mean by positioning around energy is understanding how it influences um, countries, currencies, because it is playing a much more important role and, and so as a result, we took our EFI exposure, European exposure down to almost 0%, um, which is quite a big call for uh, a traditional conservative manager back in January. And it's the best, one of the best decisions we've ever made. At the other side, we've added in an inflation hedge because every 1% rise in inflation, oil prices and gas prices go up by 8%. And uh, so you don't need much to add an inflation hedge. And so we added, uh, we took our energy position up to 10, 15%. And as a result, our our conservative balance portfolios are flat this year, maybe down a couple of like one or 2%. And everybody else, all of our peers are down 15, 16%. And so that goes back to our goals-based benchmark is how can we protect against drawdowns, which we did this year. And then now it's like, how do we make money on the recovery? Okay. And outside of energy, any other
0: inflation hedges, Martin, that you focus on or hold in the portfolio?
1: Well, yeah, so you have to be careful about your duration exposure. And so what we mean by that is managing duration risk and not, not just in, and duration risk is interest rate sensitivity. So it's not just bonds. So bonds are important. The bonds that you have, how long those bonds are um, because regulators will forced a conservative investor to have some bonds. Um, so we're, uh, the bonds that we do own are, are US dollars and, uh, and floating. And so we have to make a little bit money on currency um, we'll talk about the cat in a bit, but, um, and then looking at, um, uh, the, at the equities, you can look at areas that have done well, some materials have done well, uh, you know, commodities, the oil and gas complex has done well. Some financial services should participate, should uh, benefit from, from rising rates. I said should, some of them. Um, and, and industrials and consumers, uh, consumer discretionary. So there's, there are certain segments to be aware of that uh, that can protect yourself against inflation. Do you hold any gold? I do, yeah, for the first time. We, I mean, it hasn't been the best trade for us, um, but we bought gold for the first time at uh, in the fall of last year. And uh, so we're down a little bit on it, but um, yeah, we did buy some. Interesting, what inspired you to buy gold for the first time? Typically gold will historically, our analysis has indicated that gold will do better at the early stages of inflation and not do so well as uh, in the mid to late stages as, as rates bring that inflationary pressures down. That didn't play up this year. It didn't It didn't happen. So that was our thesis. So we're we're going to revisit that. You know, we're not always right with these calls, but um, it made sense to us at the time, and it still does make a little bit of sense. We'll see. Um, our our On the flip side, we have 50, 60% of our assets in US dollar, dollar denominated assets. So uh, that's been helpful. Now,
0: a common pushback when people talk about gold not performing that I hear is, well, actually gold's doing just fine, except relative to U S dollars. It's up in every other currency. So it's yep. more of a U.S. dollar story than it yep. gold but I guess actually U S dollar and rubles, believe it or not, but, but yeah, those two, you know, um, does that ring true for you? And does that, so when you buy gold, you buy, this as kind of like ballast, or are you looking for, a bit of return um, why why put the gold in your portfolio downside so just- protection just down yeah. yeah 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 and, and to be yeah.
1: honest we have a much bigger weight in u.s dollars and uh, the u.s dollar has been for years everyone's been trying to call the end of the world reserve currency it's yeah. just it's complete bs in my opinion there's nothing that's going to be, be able to replace the weaponization of the u.s dollar and so on and so forth i mean the bottom line is is until you time, tell me what a viable alternative is to the U.S. dollar, and it's not gold, and it's certainly not euros anymore. What is it? And it's not yen, and, and you know maybe it's rubles. <laughs> yeah, but uh, no. But the bottom line is, is that um, the flight to safety is U.S. dollars, and uh, that's that hasn't changed, and we don't see that changing anytime soon.
0: No, and I, I agree with you, and I'm I'm not maybe as certain about the future viability of U.S. dollar as reserve currency, but some, so similarly, like I can't name uh, sufficient replacements that could handle the scale and scope. Um, and if you have any doubts about people's confidence in U.S. dollars, just look at the Dixie. It's like, well, well, there's nothing to talk about here, right? When things get rough,
1: people go to U.S. dollars. But also look at the economy. I mean, it's unbelievable, and it's going. It's undergoing a transformation right now, and so um, we're seeing uh, Brookfield. I did an interview talking about Brookfield and Intel building a chip uh, manufacturing, and and you know we're seeing onshoring of manufacturing away from Asia back into the U.S. Hey, there as a young person, there's a job for you. Like, don't complain. You know, there's there's going to be plenty of. You have to look for the. Or as Griski said, look where the puck's going, and uh, there's plenty of opportunities for young people there. And so the U.S. economy is I, one, of my, one of my pieces, I'll back it up. Um, I've it framed in my office and it's the Battle of Midway. And I talked about the Battle of Midway. And I really recommend watching the TV show if you don't want to read the history books or not TV show, the movie. And the US was attacked. Um, I did this during COVID and within, and they lost their entire Pacific fleet. Within six months, it took the Japanese head on at uh, Midway and they by lock, they had four carriers Um, that were not impacted by bombing. So they retrofitted and changed their entire strategy around these four carriers. And they took them on head on six months after losing the entire Pacific fleet and they won. And so I think that's very telling of the dynamic nature of the US economy and how powerful it is. Everyone's been calling uh, its demise, but we still see it being the strongest and the most prolific economy globally. And they are adapting, they've adapted to COVID and they're da- adapting to closed markets with China. Um, they're, they have not yet adapted on the energy uh, side, but I wouldn't discount that. And so if I'm gonna put my dollars anywhere, I'm gonna put it with the, with, with the U.S. going into Midway, because um, when they're down and out, um, they really, I, don't, I can't think of any other economy that is as robust and strong as the U.S. One, US economy. And so do you think that the
0: leverage Russia has now, and will increasingly have over Western European countries like Germany, like Italy, like Norway, Hungary. You know, It's gonna be interesting to see how this winter shakes out. And I am really curious when Germans can't afford energy this November and the citizens are gonna say, look, we don't care about the history of alliances. We want food and energy. And our neighbor, hostile as they may be, has cheap access to both. And so it's time to rethink the geopolitical map here a little bit. Now, there's a lot there and there's so many, you know, there's a lot of complexity with this. It's not that simple, right? Um, but is that the beginning from your perspective of the crippling of an empire? Like are those little cracks in the empire or are you still your, your American bull long-term and there's lots more bullets in the chamber that we haven't seen been played yet on behalf of the US government?
1: you always have to try and find ways to make money in all markets. In this current market environment, if I'm gonna allocate any sort of money, it's not going to be in in a region that has been uh, actively uh, hostile towards uh, conventional oil and gas development, um, which can be used to facilitate the transformation towards more renewable sources. Um, You use those, the revenues generated from that to help transform your economy um, instead of doing an all-or-nothing strategy. Now there are pockets of that within the US. Uh, the, in California, for example, uh, they're going completely electric vehicles by 2035. Um, but their, their grid can't even support existing uh, draw uh, uh, base load demand. And if there's hot weather, for example, there's blackouts. And so you're telling me you're going to replace the entire uh fleet vehicles to electric vehicles by 2035 all new vehicle sales i mean that's just it's not realistic it's not going to happen and so a lot of that talent uh, and you have to pay for it for some from way uh, all those subsidies via taxation so these individuals are leaving and they're going to like i said detroit um orlando florida austin texas is awesome houston right and more favorable jurisdictions and so that capital is very mobile. It will it will change. It will go to uh, those with the uh, the path of least resistance, and and so on, on a global scale, that's going to go to the U.S. Um, and it's not coming to Canada. That's why our currency is delinked from oil because there's no place to invest in Canada uh, compared to the U.S. The only place that there was traditionally place to invest was in oil and gas, and there's no way they can do that now. Two things: the Emergency Act killed that. Nobody wants to invest outside of this uh, country because they're worried about uh, the, the risk of, of geopolitical. And then two is there's no infrastructure to, to build out the energy um, and expand it. And so the capital hasn't come here and our dollar has been dealing from oil. And, uh, and it's going to, all that capital is going into the US and US dollars and its currency is getting stronger. And so we think that trend is only gonna continue. Um, we don't see reversal in that at any time soon.
0: And I got to ask, as a fellow Canadian, do you see that? So just to back up, foreign investments not hitting Canada because of the emergency act? You're talking about the confiscation of financial assets last year? Yeah, okay. And so, you know, thinking through, like, I guess the real politic angle of of that geopolitical map, and I wonder how much that's going to occur at a a micro level, say within Canada, Um, we have... The resources that the entire world needs. We're a landmass larger than the United States with less people than the state of California, stocked with natural resources. We could and should have the world by the balls with the correct leadership, right? Um, I speculate, like, I wonder what it's going to take to get there. And not with reckless abandon. You know, I think we've got very high environmental standards in Canada, which is great um, and allows us to, de- to develop in a mature and uh sustainable way that's my belief anyways um and you know typically populations tend to pivot from one party far say on the left to the other party far on the right and i think that the population is getting quite exhausted with trudeau right now that would be my (laughs) thoughts um you know and so it does make me optimistic i don't know if if you know pierre polo is the guy I, i don't know right but you know, I, I wonder, and how much can you do in four years, eight years? But like, you know, do you expect us to pendulum back to maybe a more business friendly, open for business? Um, and and how how tough is that going to be to rebuild our reputation on the global stage?
1: Well, the rebuilding is probably, you know, far end of the spectrum in regards to what we need to do. Um, we have to any sort of changes politically. I'm not as optimistic as you are. Um, the reason being is you have, I I'll call Canada as a culture of complacency and we've been spoiled and um, we're not as innovative as the US. We are certainly not as productive as the US and we've had to rely on our currency. And, uh, and the only time we did get to par with the US was because of energy and resources, which we've actually purposely tried or been trying to phase out by putting um, a cap on infrastructure via putting massive restrictions on the building out of that infrastructure by Bill C-69. Sure, you may revoke that Bill C-69, let's say Pierre or whoever's in charge gets into power. Um, But is that really gonna change things? Is that gonna bring capital back in? And I think you have to have a buy-in from the mass population. Um, ideally, uh, my favorite saying is idealism is really easy if it costs somebody else for it. <laughs> and right. um, if you're sitting in Ontario, and uh, I love Ontario, there are a lot of clients there. Um, and um, and I'm looking at where, you know, if you're an average person in Ontario, you've made a bunch of money in your house and real estate. And you're like, well, I really don't want a pipeline coming through here. I don't want any in, in sort of, in any sort of, resource energy development. I would like to have electric vehicles. I would like to have um, solar on my roof. And those are all really nice things. I agree, right? But if it's costing somebody else that and not you, it's an easy position to take. So Europe is is where I'm keeping a close eye on um, because there still are protests um, against resource development in, in those areas. They are putting in anti-fertilizer policy in in Holland, for example, it's gonna impact food. And so is there enough pain? Um, I've been looking on Twitter, all of these uh, power bills that these people in Italy are paying, it's insane. And so is it going to be the pain gonna be so high that they need to revisit um, some of their longer term policies? And uh, I think that's what you need to happen. Um, to get buy-in from everybody, because right now people are just too comfortable. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Okay. You know, it, it reminds me of uh, I just had to look it up here as you were chatting, because, you know, you mentioned the sort of prosperity of Ontario, and you know, once you're in a good place, you want to maintain, right, and not disrupt. I mean, we don't want that pipeline. We don't need Alberta and gas, you know, oil and gas to get the tidewater. Does it affect us, right? Well, Alberta might have something to say about that. And we're seeing more, um, I think, sovereignty, like many sovereign eruptions occur, whether it's this candidate, um, Danielle Smith in Alberta or the Saskatchewan. Now, what was it in Saskatchewan recently? Um, Saskatchewan threatens to arrest federal agents tra- trespassing on farms. Uh, If they're there to do diligence on fertilizer allocation. And we're starting to see like little micro eruptions like this rebelling against the federal leadership at the provincial level, which is inspiring to me because one thing I love about the United States, my wife's American. So we are continuously having the conversation about if and what would be our line to pull the plug in Canada and boogie down to Texas where she's from. And, you know, we've, we've come really close. We've been to Texas twice in the last year and a half looking at property. Um, what I love about the United States is the sovereignty of the states. And like peak COVID, I still had to travel a lot for work. And it was like every single state I went to, whether it was Idaho, Washington, Oregon, California, Texas, Mississippi, Arizona, it was a whole new adventure in terms of risk management and their approach to risk management. They all do their own thing, which is lovely because as a citizen, it lets you choose your own adventure. You know what I mean? If you're super conservative, go here. If you're like, leave me alone, go here, you know? And so Um, And I don't know if, you know, a Commonwealth country could ever get there. I don't think it's feasible. Right. But we're starting to see demand for it. That's absolutely true. What do you think?
1: Yeah. So mobility of labor is, um, is an important factor. And and especially in this new world of a shortage of supply of quality work workers. Um, That's why I think there'll be wage inflation finally after, like I said, 35 years. Right. And so there'll there'll be a demand for young Uh, talented individuals globally um, to go move to those jurisdictions. And so um, Canada, if it's not careful, and I did write a piece about this is going to see a mass exodus of its young people. Um, And, and, and that's not a good thing. Uh, For example, if I I showed uh, if you were in, in the GTA, um, you could take your income. I think it was like 60 or $70,000 as a tech worker to a hundred grand and by moving from the GTA into Denver, of all places. And instead of paying, you can get a million dollar house for $500,000. So all of a sudden now you get a bump in your pay and you're in a house, right? And you're in Denver, which is a pretty awesome place because yeah. if you like skiing and biking like me, you know, you get all of that. Um, and so I think we have to be careful about that. We can't take that for granted. And looking at Canada as a whole, there was an interesting stat and I did write about this in my post column, um, was that um, since March of 2020, 87.5% of the new jobs added in this country are government public service jobs. Now we do need public service. I mean, the healthcare system has been taxed, and and teachers have been taxed, and you know, obviously there needs to be some resources allocated in in the, in the midst of a, one of the biggest uh, healthcare crises in our in our lifetime. Um, but not all of that because we didn't see the same kind of numbers in the U.S. And so all of the jobs have been added at our, you know, 87, like I said, have been public service. And someone put a comment on my tweet. Well, this is great because they're going to pay taxes and everything else. I said, well, you know, how about you write me a check and I write you a check and we go to Costco and have some fun. Um, someone has to pay for these workers. Right. And and people just don't understand that. And uh, we can't, you know, break all the windows and, and replace all of them in saying that's economic growth. We need to attract young people. And, uh, and how do we do that? Because right now, it, it, Canada's, other than the, the, those who are not happy politically if, with who's in charge in the US, certainly who was previously in charge, um, but a lot of that didn't cause these young people to move up into Canada.
0: So you've mentioned wage inflation a couple of times. Can you walk me through your thesis there? What's gonna be the catalyst for us to start seeing wage inflation?
1: It's already starting. And so what I mean by that is in the U S you have 3.9% unemployment, 11 and a half million job openings. And there's a shortage of workers in, especially in the service side. Um, that is the same, same situation up here in Canada. Um, you look at a restaurant you're saying we're closing early cause we can't get staff. Or I mean, I, I go to Whistler every year and, and they've reduced their hours at the restaurants or they're limiting the restaurants half full and you're you're keeping it half full because you don't have the staff to to open up the rest of it and i think that is um the start of something bigger and i think COVID accelerated the demand for for labor and it it just all of a sudden you have a whole bunch of baby boomers who retired and saying i'm done working i've had this lockdown i'm going to spend my money and traveling and you only live once and and so they left the workforce and then you have all of these young people who haven't been able to go in and, and step in, or some of them say, I'll just sit in the sidelines like you said. And so um, I think it's a bigger start of a trend that you have an aging workforce that is aging out. They have more demand on healthcare services and there isn't uh, the, the, the the number of younger people to step in and fill those shoes. And that's not just, in, that's not just people say, well, I'll look at Japan. Japan had an aging workforce and they don't have inflation. Well, because he outsourced their entire workforce to China, who did. And now China's closing its borders and you're having onshoring of manufacturing, on of everything. People want reliability over price. Um, a great example I use is my sons were big mountain bikers. He, uh, his brake lever on his bike went and it was 40 bucks for a lever, but I had to wait two months for the lever or to replace the whole uh, braking system with cables and for 200 bucks and I get back the next day. Well, I paid 200 bucks. I think most people will do that. And and so China's closing its doors. The pay disparity between uh, China and the U.S. has narrowed significantly. It went from 25 down to 5. And and so now you don't have that as an option anymore. So I I think the the younger person will have a lot more pricing power than they've ever had before on wages. And they're going to demand it because um, the cost of living has gone up because of energy and everything else. And, uh, and so I think this is going to accelerate that, that whole process. And you think that
0: occurs in time. So, you know, we're going to see inflation, therefore in wage inflation and necessity goods, inflation, right? I mean, you're, you're yeah. in energy because the price is going to go up, right. It's already becoming quite unaffordable for many people. And this winter, that'll probably increase even more. And, you know, we, we saw, significant inflation six months ago begin to emerge or really get strong, but there was like discretionary spending inflation and then this necessity spending inflation. And the discretionary yeah. spending inflation seems to have come down a little yeah. bit, right? Yeah. You know, Use car market, for example, like it was yeah. the hottest chart in the world six months ago.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's come down, but the
1: necessities there, they've maintained and I would
0: speculate food and energy probably gonna keep going up.
1: Um, well, and- I would I, I would say there's more commodity volatility so uh, I think lumber is a great chart because, you know, it crashed and went back up again, crashed, went back up again. And I think we're going to see a lot of that, uh, that volatility as people try to figure out how much of it is going to be sticky and how much of it isn't. And that creates, that's only going to make the situation worse because um, if you're a producer in any of those areas and your commodity underlying your price taker and your underlying commodities, is, you know, one day up X amount and down X amount and we're getting 4% daily swings in it. You're not going to bring any more supply on the market. You're just going to sell it into the market to get cash flow and that's it. And you're seeing that with share buybacks and dividends instead of capital reinvestment. So some of that will, I agree with you, it'll be volatile for the next little while, but longer term to be stickier. Other segments that like you mentioned are coming down? So you brought up a good point. So I'm, I'm a believer that uh, we're going to hike and hold. And um, I think we're going to see inflation around 4% not you know, eight and a half or nine or whatever that number you know, is gonna come back down, 4%. And uh, we're gonna see you know wages uh, support that and, and commodity prices support that. And you know interest rates um, at three and a half percent, um, 4%. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Uh, a great example is um, if you can buy a house with a 6% mortgage rate and the house is 300 grand, or would you buy a $600,000 house with a 3% mortgage rate, you're much better off paying a higher interest rate. So um, in in the lower asset price. And so I I think we're gonna be going through that kind of transition. Interesting, interesting. So how do you feel about the
0: Canadian housing market right now? Are you optimistic or are you a bit scared?
1: Well, I have a little bit of home, home bias here in Calgary. Um, we did a love it or listed on our house, our own version of it. So we renovated our house and we're looking concurrently to see if there's something better. And so far, we're loving it. Um, in the last five places I've looked at, um, there was actually competitive bids and people walking through the, the, the open houses with uh, live video streaming back to Ontario. Hmm. And so um, we're, we're, it's, not, it's more bullish here in Calgary than anywhere else. Um, in other jurisdictions, I can't speak to, but it does make sense that um, with variable rates going up, um, that um, the froth in those areas like GTA or Vancouver should be coming down. And interesting enough, you said you're in Squamish, but cammore is very similar to Squamish. And uh, and a lot of people are actually moving from Cammore back into Calgary, because the pricing is similar in cammore as it is in uh, Squamish. Fascinating. Yeah, you know, I, I, I struggle with my my expectations
0: of the real estate market because of how nuanced the local, um, I guess, factors can be. Like for example, yes, Squamish, little town, 45 minutes outside of downtown Vancouver. Vancouver, by the way, so here's my thoughts on Vancouver because I get into this debate all the time and, you know, the only like bipartisan agreement in Vancouver seems to be that there's a housing crisis that needs to be fixed. And the housing crisis is that real estates become uh, astronomically expensive and we need to fix this, right? And everybody seems to agree with this, except me. I, I sit there in these rooms and I'm like, like look out a window guys. Like, what about this city makes you believe it's ever gonna be cheap? All right, we got the Pacific ocean on one side, coastal mountains on the other, a small city surrounded by water on three sides more or less an island super lenient immigration policies like it's a market that's highly attractive it's it's governed predictably it's safe it's clean you know uh and it's open to the entire world it's very finite inventory why on earth would this place be affordable to anybody except the super wealthy i mean that's just what happens to places like that you know what i mean and you know if there's a sticky if there's like a Yeah. But right there is that, um, it's the conversation, confiscation of financial assets last year by Trudeau. I think he probably scared the world in terms of how safe of a safe haven are, are, you know, you have lots of Chinese money made a bit of dough and you're in mainland China. You want to get out of the country because maybe you don't know what's going to happen there. Vancouver has historically been a great money garage, right? So there's tons of, tons of vacant condos and, you know, I'm not going to get into that, but it just is what it is. I mean, debate it all you want. It it occurs. And, um, you know, that's, that's, I think a big trigger point that could shift a little bit if money gets scared of our, our leadership. I mean, that would make sense to me. Squamish, similarly, it's like a little strip of land. I mean, on a highway called the sea to sky for a reason, there's an ocean here and mountains here and one little strip you can only expand so much. And so, you know, I, I wonder about, yeah, I, I kind of feel like there's so much nuance in the localities of real estate that it's hard to really put my wrap my mind around like a broad spectrum forecast
1: but at the same time you have places not to pick on Hamilton Ontario but you have places like Hamilton Ontario that are more expensive than San Jose California yeah
0: that's crazy
1: yeah and and so I've been to both and San Jose is freaking awesome I love to live there it's it's very similar to what you just described about Vancouver right and so there are some dislocations that will not be as protected as uh, what you just described and so Um, I, I like the way you're thinking because we we deploy that that kind of strategic thinking on our uh, tactical asset allocation. Um, so barriers to entry and and you know destinations for for growth and opportunities and so that that level of, of of thinking should be deployed in in other areas
0: as well too. So walk me through, Martin. Walk me through the firm the work you do, the kind of clients you handle, um, where we can hear more about what it is you do and the content you create in addition to the money that you manage.
1: Yeah, so what, what we try and really focus on is removing the emotion from investing. And uh, that's key. We do not sell any sort of financial products, which tends to be the, the industry standard. Um, is I'm gonna try and sell you an ideal or sell you a narrative, and, and then here's a product that you wanna buy. Uh, we don't do any of that. Um, It's more along the lines of how can we protect you against yourself (laughs) and how we protect ourselves against yourself. And so we have a lot of entrepreneurs that are clients, for example, that um, had a sense of control over their, over their destiny because they were running a business and they could, you know, weather the storm, weather recession, they got hit with everything. And then now they've sold said business, for example, and now they have to relinquish that control over to somebody else or try and do it themselves, which they don't have an idea about. And so we try and, and we take those clients in uh, high net worth investors. We also run a uh, um, an, an institutional investment fund um, level fund. And um, we just won an award on that to uh, uh, naming us alongside CI and financial and the others over so the David versus Goliath. And, uh, <laughs> and so what we, we try and do is something called goals-based benchmarking. That's the gist of it. I mentioned it to you earlier. Um, everybody's different. Everybody's got different goals and objectives. Uh, some people may sell their real estate and, and uh, rent and want to live off their investments and all they need is 4 or 5% and they can't go do ladder GICs. So how do they get 4 or 5% and take as little risk as possible? Um, and that's a tough thing to do as interest rates are going up and your bonds are going down. Um, some clients want to be more tactical in their growth and uh, want to continue to, to leave uh, something for a charity or for a younger person, uh, for their next generation, for the kids. How do we do that? And they may be in 6 to 8% or 10 to 15%. Um, and then we design a portfolio around that. And uh, And what we do is we take the um, bell curve of that distribution and we narrow it down as much as possible. So we get a lot of predictability in those returns. We do that through our risk management and some of the things I mentioned earlier about tactical, tactical asset allocation. And so we can do that because we have 50 clients. That's it, 50 households. Got it. Um, yeah, and ranging in size, our high, our largest client would have about five hundred million in net worth, and and uh, our smallest would be probably about two or three million, and uh, and so we can do something a more, a little more specialized uh, than what you would get uh, um, out there right now.
0: Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. And entrepreneurs that exit their business are very smart to seek out oh, yeah. professional. Wealth management, just because what makes a great entrepreneur typically makes a terrible investor. You need to be a perpetual optimist, right, to succeed as an entrepreneur. But the best investors I know are just perpetual skeptics and cynics, right? They're, you know, I, I poke fun at myself in this regard. I was an entrepreneur before I became an investor, and I used to look at deals when I began allocating cash with a buddy of mine who had an opposite journey, and he'd been managing money for a few years already. And we could both go and hear the same pitch. Yeah, He would leave and say, not a chance because of one, two, and three. And I would leave saying, this could be great. All they have to do is fix one, two, and three. And we're looking at the same thing, right? Just different perspective on, on, uh, you know, yeah. So, um, okay, very cool. And and if people want to read what you're writing, Martin, where should I send them?
1: Um, So I write for the Financial Post. I've been a columnist for about 12 years for the Investment Pro section. Um, I write every Monday. It comes out, so you can find me there and uh that's probably the best place to start and uh and then you can you know just google and and you find me these various interviews such as uh as this one all right awesome look martin appreciate your time
0: thanks for coming on you betcha thanks for having me if you enjoy my content do me a favor follow or subscribe to this podcast drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.